1970s, the Nestle Corporation came up with an ad campaign for what was called Quick. Now, it's called Nest Quick now, but at the time, it was called Quick, and it was this powder, uh, chocolate strawberry powder that you would put in milk. I loved the strawberry. It was one of my favorite uh, snacks or things to, to drink. And uh, so they had this ad campaign in the 70s with this cartoon bunny, and the ad campaign was uh, based on the storyline where the bunny really wanted to be able to drink the, the powder drink mix. He wanted to be able to have patience and drink it slowly, like a normal bunny would, right? Uh, but he never could. He never had the patience to be able to do that. He always drank it quickly, kind of a clever uh, ad campaign type of a thing. But what I remember about those commercials from the 70s, uh, I, I can remember uh, some of the phrases uh, where the, the cartoon bunny would say, patience is a virtue. And I, I remember it because my mom repeated it every time uh, the commercial would come on. She said, Mark, are you listening? Patience is a virtue. And, and he would say things like, good things come to those who wait. He really wanted to be patient but he just couldn't do it. He got excited, and he would drink, he would drink the, the, uh, the drink very quickly. I think the reason why this ad campaign was so effective is because our American culture does not value patience, right? We value speed. We value efficiency, but we don't like to wait. We don't value patience. I ordered a printer for the church recently, and it has been two weeks, and it's still not here, and I'm going out of my mind. Like, I don't know why this printer is not here yet. And, and when I was a kid, I can remember, you know, if you ordered something, uh, it was standard that you would wait a month, right? Four to six weeks. Remember that? It would always be at the end of every commercial. Wait four to six weeks. It'll be here. And so that was normal. And then Amazon came along, and they have completely changed our expectation now, if something doesn't show up the next day or two days at max, right, three days in, we're ready to call someone on the phone, have somebody fired. This is ridiculous. It's been three days. And they've completely changed our expectations of how long it takes to ship things. And uh, we, we, as a culture, are just impatient. We don't like to wait. Biblically, though, if we think about some of the passages from Scripture that talk to believers, followers of Jesus, patience is, like the bunny said, patience is indeed an important virtue. I'm just going to go through a few of these verses. Uh, they'll be on the screen. Galatians 5, and 23 gives a list of character qualities, a list of things that the Holy Spirit uh, develops in the follower of Jesus, things like uh, love, uh, joy, peace, patience, you see that one there, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But patience is one of those character qualities that should be found in the life of someone who's living a Jesus-centered life, someone who is allowing the Holy Spirit to, uh, to lead their lives. Colossians 3.12 says that God's chosen people should be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. 
Ephesians 4, 1 and 2 says that living a life that is worthy of the salvation that we have received through faith in Jesus should, uh, should be defined by being humble, gentle, and patient. 1 Corinthians 13 describes what true love is. And at the top of the list, very first thing out of the gate, verse 4 says, love is patient. Cartoon Bunny, I think, was right. Patience is indeed a virtue. But I wonder how many of us would admit, and let's just own it, right? Raise your hand if you would admit that patience is sometimes hard. Being patient is sometimes hard. Yeah, it is. I want to welcome you back to our series called Do Hard Things. Here at Grace Fellowship, we want to help you live a Jesus-centered life, and you just need to know that following Jesus is not going to be easy. Living a Jesus-centered life is not about chasing after comfort at all costs. It's not about, well, I'll do what God wants me to do if it's convenient, or as long as it doesn't conflict with what I want. Living a Jesus-centered life is a commitment to do hard things because Jesus had the courage to do hard things and He's the example by which we are patterning our lives. We want to be like Jesus. So we do hard things. I'm going to ask you to join me in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. When it comes to patience... If Jesus is our example, let's see what example he set for us when it comes to patience. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says, This is a trustworthy saying that everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We can just have a sigh of relief and be thankful for that, right? That Jesus came to save sinners like you and like me. It's interesting then that Paul, the, the writer of this, uh, this letter to a, to a young pastor, uh, he puts himself in this category. He says, we're so thankful that Jesus came to save sinners. And he says, I'm the worst of all of them. When he saw his, uh, his life, he looked back over his life. You remember, Paul was one who, who persecuted Christians, had them put in jail, uh, had them killed. Uh, that, was, that was who Paul was for a lot of his adult life. And then when he came to know Jesus, uh, repented of his sin, he was forgiven. Uh, he was radically transformed by the power of Jesus. And he looks back and he says, I was the worst. When it comes to sinners, I was the worst. Verse 16, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience. If you have a New International Version, it says unlimited patience. God used me. He had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great unlimited patience with, the, with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and have eternal life. Jesus displayed, he demonstrated unlimited patience, and as, uh, as our example, we are to follow Jesus. He set the standard of patience at unlimited. 
Right now, some of you are thinking, I think we need to change the name of the series. This should be Do Impossible Things, right? Set the bar at unlimited patience. I kind of like that title, Do Impossible Things. But I want to take you back in your mind to Galatians 5.22. Because if you're sitting here thinking, there's no way I am capable of unlimited patience. And I would agree with that. We're not. But Galatians 5.22, when it talks about the fruit of the, not the fruit of Mark, not the fruit of you, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. What we are learning from God's Word is not how how to become a tougher version of ourselves, not how to become, you know, find this inner strength to become a better version of ourselves in ourselves. We're learning how to rely on the Spirit of God to do hard things. And unlimited patience, I think you would agree, is a hard thing. Take a deep breath, and I want you to write this down somewhere. When we talk about unlimited patience, I'm going to break this out for us, and we're going to take some time to just think through this together. But just have this simple statement down. When we talk about unlimited patience, I want you to remember this simple statement. Stay calm. Stay calm. Wait with faith and grace. When we think through unlimited patience this morning, thinking about how hard that can be, uh, what we're going to mean by that as we, as we define patience, we're going to land on this thought, this simple idea. Stay calm. Wait with faith and grace. That's where we're headed. Let's unpack that statement. First of all, by defining patience, the word itself according to Webster's Dictionary, means bearing pains or trials calmly or without complaint, not hasty or impulsive, steadfast despite opposition, difficulty, or adversity. Now, the last part of that definition makes patience a first cousin of perseverance, right? This idea of steadfast Staying steadfast despite opposition, difficulty, or adversity. That's perseverance. So, yes, patience and perseverance are first cousins with one another. And if you missed our sermon last week on perseverance, make sure you get on the website and watch it. But the first two parts of that definition really break patience down into two parts. And we experience this. We experience both parts of this definition in our everyday lives when it comes to patience. First, patience has to do with waiting. Waiting for something. You have to be patient when when you're waiting for something. But there's another part to patience, and it's putting up with things that don't meet our expectation. We sometimes have a hard time keeping our patience when something frustrates us, something doesn't meet our expectations, or someone uh, in our life doesn't live up to our expectations. And then we experience impatience, right? Impatience. Impatience happens when, first of all, we dislike waiting. Our dislike of waiting uh, gets away from us. Culturally, we don't like to wait, but sometimes that dislike for waiting gets away from us. It gets the best of us, and we make a hasty decision, or we, make, or we take an impulsive action, 
or maybe we say or do things that we shouldn't be doing that, that doesn't match up with all those character qualities that we just talked about, kindness, goodness, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, all those things, doesn't match up with who we should be as a follower of Christ. And it happens uh, just in everyday life. We say this line is too long. This cashier is too slow. This building project's taking forever. This driver must be confused between the gas pedal and the brake. Like, I need to get up there and show them the difference between the two. Or how about this one? I've been praying, uh, I've been praying to God about this for weeks, for months, for years. And God still hasn't done what I want Him to do. Impatience happens when our dislike of waiting gets the best of us and we allow frustration to, uh, to get the best of us and it flows out in our words and in our actions, in our attitudes. Impatience also happens when other people or circumstances do not meet our expectations. We get frustrated, and maybe we say things, or maybe we do things that are hasty, that are not kind. It might sound like this. Listen, I don't have the patience to explain this to you one more time. Ever said that? Ever thought it? You should know better. This is one I heard when, when I was, was growing up. Give me that, I'll do it myself. Remember that as a kid? How about this one? Why are you so incompetent? Why are you so stupid? This is not that hard. When we say things like, I lost my patience, we don't mean, I can't find it. I misplaced it. What do we mean? We mean we lost our grip on it, right? We've lost our grip on Patience. And we say things and we do things out of anger and out of frustration that are not loving or kind or compassionate or grace-filled. Let's dig a little bit deeper into impatience because impatience, as we explore it, we find out that it happens when you and I believe that the world, everything and everyone in it, Impatience happens because we believe that the world should run on our schedule and according to our liking. That's when impatience happens. Impatience happens when we believe that the world should run on our schedule and everything should be to our liking. And when it's not, when it doesn't, well, then we get frustrated. So if you really want to break down impatience, impatience is our desire to be in control. At the, at the root of it, it's our desire to be in control. As long as everybody does what I want, when I want, everything's good. If you ever wanted to see a clear example of how impatience can make a mess in, in, in a person's life, I think one of the best examples is Abraham and Sarah from the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Would you go there with me to the book of Genesis? First book in the Bible, chapter 15. Go all the way to the beginning, chapter 15. 
I'm not going to read to you the entire story. That's all we would get done. I'm going to fast forward through a few things. But we find out uh, in Genesis that when, when God asked Abraham, who at the time his name was Abram, he, he, he told him that he wanted him to go to a, a different land, and I'll show you where you're going to go. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to make a promise with you. He makes this promise. He makes this covenant with Abraham, uh, not only about the land, but about having descendants, which would mean that he would have an heir, which means he would have a son. And at the time, he didn't. And when this, it says here, uh, chapter, I think, 12 or 13, it says that he was 75 years old when he got to this land. 75 years old, this promise is made. And when we jump into this story, uh, when it comes to this decision that Abraham and Sarah made, at that time, it says that Abraham was 85 years old. So imagine you've got this promise that God makes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a son. You're going you're gonna to have an heir, and your descendants are going to be uh, like the stars in the sky, the sand of the, uh, on the seashore, right? And uh, he believed. He, 75, that's, that's up in years, but he believed by faith. Ten years later, 85 years old, it still hasn't happened. And so we might understand why it is that, uh, th- that they might have been impatient. But it says in chapter 15, verses 4 to 6, God, uh, again, reestablishes or just reminds him of this promise. Uh, he, he says, no, your servant will not be your heir. He, he's just, Lord, I don't understand. This promise doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, did we miss it? Did we, uh, why is this taking so long? And is it, is it going to happen some other way? No. Uh, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look in the sky, count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you have. Just reassuring him, uh, I know it's taken a while, but but I'm going to keep my promise, God says. You get to chapter 16, look what happens in chapter 16. Uh, Sarah, who at the time her name was Sarai, uh, she's impatient. And she says to, to Abram, uh, she said, uh, she has this Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, verse 2, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant, Hagar. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarah's proposal. Impatience is about to make a mess of things. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. 75, 85, not right. You get the timing. Abram had sexual relations with Hagar. She became pregnant. Watch this. Watch the dynamic in the family change. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat Sarah with contempt. And Sarah wanted nothing to do with it. Sarah said to Abram, this is all your fault. What? Jump into this reality of this conversation. Who was, whose idea was it? It was Sarah's idea. Abram went along with it, but now she's mad. This is all your fault. I put my servant in your arms, and now she's pregnant. She treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. I mean, you can just imagine... The tension in this, in this conversation, in this family dynamic, and it gets worse. It gets worse. It doesn't go away. It never gets better. 
In fact, uh, later on, when they have this the son, Hagar, and, and Abram have a son he's named Ishmael, and when he's a teenager, this is after uh, the son is born to uh, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac is born, and, uh, and Sarah is like, I, I, I'm done with Hagar, I'm done with Ishmael, they've got to go. So imagine that, in, as Ishmael's a teenager, Sarah puts this pressure on Abraham and says, they've got to go. They can't stay in the family, they can't stay in the tribe, you've got to get rid of them. Just heartbreak. Chapter 21, look at verse 1. The Lord kept His word. He did for Sarah exactly what He had promised. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Look at this. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. If you think about that promise, a 25-year-old promise, I think we can understand the impatience. I think we can at least uh, relate to or sympathize with the idea this is never going to happen. But their impatience made a mess in the family dynamic, and things never really did get better. Had they been patient, they could have avoided a lot of heartache. But let's just be honest, impatience is easy. Impatience is easy. It's natural, especially in our American culture where we don't value patience. Impatience is normal in our culture. Patience is hard. And we need God's help, especially if the standard that Jesus set for us is unlimited patience. We need God's help. So let's talk about what unlimited patience looks like when you feel frustration, when, uh, when we feel like, I don't like to wait, I've got this unmet expectation in my life and I feel frustrated by it. What does unlimited patience really look like when we have those feelings? It means stay calm, wait with faith and grace. And I want to give you an example of that. I want to show you another story about a woman who had sorrow in her life because she couldn't get pregnant either. Her name was Hannah, and her example uh, is, is different from Sarah's in that uh, she was experiencing a lot of those same emotions and, and tension in her life, but she held her grip on patience. First Samuel, go there with me. First Samuel chapter 1. We meet in First Samuel, we meet a guy who had two wives. And here we are, two examples in, and some of you are wondering, wait a minute, what's with all this polygamy? Why, why did God allow polygamy in the Old Testament? And I just want to recognize it's a great question. Uh, we don't have time to go down that rabbit trail this morning, uh, but I just here, here's what I know about some of you because I'm wired the same way. Uh, I want to talk about patience, and some of you right now are thinking about polygamy. Like, wait, I can't, I can't get past polygamy. Why is this happening, right? And so let's just, uh, I just want to kind of give you the basics here about 
some of the stuff happening in the Old Testament. God did not forbid, explicitly forbid polygamy in, in the Old Testament. It was not part of God's original design. You go back to the Garden of Eden, it was not part of God's original design for marriage. When we get to the New Testament, uh, it's very clear uh, that God's word promotes the ideal for marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Uh, and can I just say this? Practically speaking, in case you're kind of bouncing this idea around, polygamy is a bad idea. Just don't do it. It's a bad idea. When, when, when you go through the examples, especially in the Old Testament, uh, every example you're going to find of polygamy, you're going to find problems. It never works out. There's always problems within the family dynamic that come directly from that decision to have more than one wife. There's never harmony in the home from it. So just don't do it, okay? That's enough for now. Okay, move back to patience. Get off polygamy. Uh, we can discuss that some other time. Uh, back to patience. We, we see the same dynamic where there's two wives and, and a husband, and uh, Hannah can't get pregnant. And uh, Penny, I'll call her Penny. Penny can. And uh, Penny makes Hannah's life miserable. She makes fun of her. She taunts her. Uh, she makes her feel small. And uh, the, this dynamic in the family between the two is, is just, it's heartbreaking. First uh, Samuel chapter 1, look at verse 6. Paniah would taunt Hannah. She would make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Now understand, uh, when it comes to the historical context here, uh, if, if you ever experienced in your life the inability or it's been hard to have a child, there's an emotional part of that that's really, really hard just because you want to have a child. And, and if that's not fulfilled, it's, it's, it's really difficult. And, and some of you understand that because you've lived it. Add to that a cultural expectation that we don't experience. Like if, if you don't have a child, if that doesn't happen for you, no one looks at you and thinks you're a loser. No one looks at you and thinks you're cursed by God in our culture, right? They feel bad for you. They don't, they don't make fun of you. They don't taunt you as if you're somehow cursed. Uh, but that's not the case culturally and historically what's happening here. There's this expectation. There's something wrong with you. Right? And, and so she's already got that dynamic going on uh, that she just doesn't understand it. And, uh, and then Penny's making it worse. And uh, it says that she would taunt her because the Lord kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. They would take this trip uh, to the tabernacle uh, for a sacrifice to worship. And it was this big family thing that they would do together. And, and Penny just made it terrible for Hannah. It says... Uh, each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears. She couldn't eat. And some of you, you read that. Uh, ladies, uh, some of you are like, I would pull Penny by the hair outside the tent, right? And we'd, we'd be getting after it, right? Uh, but that's not, what, that's not what Hannah does. Uh, her husband's asking, why are you crying? Uh, why aren't you eating? And some of you want to slap him in the face now, like, don't you get it? Don't you see what, what she's been doing? But she doesn't do that either. It says, uh, verse 9, once after a sacrificial meal, Hannah got up. And what did she do? Do you read it in verse 9? What did she do? Read it, verse 9. Tell me what she did. She got up and went to pray. 
She prayed. She didn't get in Penny's face. She didn't get in her husband's face. She didn't lose her patience. She got up and went to pray. And as the story goes on, uh, she prays and she begs God for, uh, for the blessing of being a mom. And, and uh, God does answer that prayer. But it's interesting, uh, it doesn't happen immediately. And uh, what's interesting to me is the next day, uh, they, they get up. After all this is going on, she's heartbroken. She gets up, she worships, and they go back home as a family. She just, she keeps going. She keeps going. And it is amazing. As the story unfolds, uh, God blesses her with a son, and which is an incredible miracle. It's an incredible blessing. Uh, but in the context of what we're talking about this morning, it's just, to me, as amazing. It's just as impressive, this part of the story, that she held on to her patience. She held on to her grip on patience. You know, patience doesn't mean that we uh, just sit around and wait for problems to go away on their own. If you're having chest pains, if your arm goes numb, don't patiently wait for your heart to explode. Don't do that, right? Call 911, get to the emergency room. In an emergency situation, you might not have time to patiently wait for help to arrive. You may have to step into action. Patience is not a call to a life of inaction. Just sit around and wait for everything to happen. Being the last one out of a crowded parking lot, right, where you just sit there, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go, until you're the last one in the parking lot, that... That doesn't make you the most spiritual person in the parking lot, necessarily. Uh, it might just mean you're a bad driver, and you don't understand the system between, you know, you go, and then I go, and then, right? Patience doesn't mean that we have to force ourselves to be satisfied with things that could be improved, with things that should be better than they are. There are things in life that should be changed, that can be better. And uh, patience doesn't mean that we just have to be satisfied with, uh, with less than the best. We should give God our best. We should give each other our best. And there are things that we have the ability, not everything, but there are things that we have the ability to improve. Patience doesn't mean we have to stay politely silent when we see injustice. When our culture promotes things that God defines as disgusting or wrong, that we have to be politely silent about it, it's not, patience is not an excuse to avoid doing hard things. Rather, patience is doing hard things the right way. It's having the right attitude. It's having the right demeanor. It's using words that are loving and kind, even when you have to say something that's hard. Stay calm. Wait with faith and grace. If you need to act, if you need to speak, then speak truth in love. Act in love. Act with kindness. If you need to wait, then stay calm and wait with faith. Believing that God's timing is right and best. Wait with grace, right? With a humble heart, with, with gentleness in your heart. 
You're like, wow, that's okay. How long do we have to do that? How long do I have to be patient? What's the standard? Unlimited patience. That's the example that Jesus set for us, and that's hard. You know, I feel like over the years I've shared lots of examples of my failures when it comes to things, uh, even with patience. Is it okay if I share with you a success? Like, I know you enjoy hearing the stories of my failures. I get that. But uh, can I share a success? Would that be all right? all right? I know it's not as fun, but stick with me. Uh, this week, I had a junior high, seventh grade football player that... Uh, as we were getting ready to go down to the field, he walks by, and both, both shoelaces uh, were just hanging all over the place, right? Not even an attempt to, to tie them. And uh, his shoulder pad straps, if you don't know how shoulder pads work, you, they have these straps come from the back, and then they connect in the front. Neither one of them were connected. In fact, one was coming out the back of his jersey like this, and the other one's down here, and and he was holding his belt. It wasn't on. He was holding it. And so as he walks by me, I said, why aren't you dressed? I didn't have enough time. And I said, there's 30 other guys that had enough time to get dressed. Why aren't you dressed? And he mumbled something and just kept walking. All right. So at some point, he was able, he got down to the field, and he was able to get himself together and we're going through practice, and about halfway through, I noticed that one of his shoes was, was untied. And uh, I said, you need to tie your shoe. And he looked at me and said, I can't. I can't. No, can you tie my shoe? He asked me, could you tie my shoe? Seventh grade football player, can you tie my shoe, coach? I can't. And in that moment, those are one of those moments where it's like the temptation is to say, are you kidding me? You are a seventh grade football player and you can't tie your shoes, right? The temptation is to lose your patience and to say something demeaning or condescending, but I didn't. I had a victory, and I said, you know what? I got down on one knee, and I, imagine this, a coach on a knee tying the shoe of a seventh grader, something we learned when we were six. I tied his shoe, and I, I looked up at him, and I said, listen, this is not okay. I was calm and kind. This is not okay. You need to learn how to tie your shoes. I'm going to give you one week. This time next week, I want you to know how, learn how to tie your shoes. Get some help, whatever, learn how to tie your shoes. You need to, you need to know how to do this. And uh, so that was the end of the conversation. He said, okay, thanks. And uh, when he was leaving that day, or at the end of the practice, uh, I said, what's your goal? What's your mission? I'm going to learn how to tie my shoes, coach. I'm going to learn how to tie my shoes. Okay. The next day, um, down the field, and uh, he runs by me, and as he's running by me, I look to see his shoes, and the shoelaces are not all over the place. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. Uh, it didn't take him a week. It was one day, right? And so I said, hey, come here. Good job. And I gave him a fist bump. 
there was another coach standing beside me. He knew what was going on, and he, as the guy, kid takes my fist bump and runs off to go do the drill. And uh, the coach says, uh, you know he didn't tie his shoes. We, what do you mean? No, he, he tucked his laces into the sides of his shoes. He didn't tie his shoes. This is when I realized it's going to be hard to be patient, right? It's going to be hard to be patient. We'll get through it. When does being patient become hard for you? I don't know what it would be. You don't even have to answer out loud, but is it when you have to wait? Is that when it's hard for you? When you have to wait? Is it when people or, or, or circumstances don't meet your expectations? Is, is that when being patient is hard for you? When you want more control than you have? When is being patient hard for you? I found myself becoming, over this past year maybe, maybe it's longer than that, I don't know, but I, I, have, I have found myself at times becoming or experiencing impatience uh, when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ. And that might hit your ears as, a, as uh, something that's good, and I'm telling you that it's, it's, it's not. The Bible says we should be eager for the return of Jesus, right? There's a healthy eagerness that we should have for Jesus to come back. And I'm telling you, that's not what I'm talking about. Yes, we should have an eager return for Jesus, but I have found myself at times feeling frustration over the darkness that we see in the world that seems to be gaining momentum, that seems to be gaining power day by day. I have felt frustration over illogical arguments meant to, to manipulate, and it, 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 it seems as though it would be easy to just say, what you just said isn't true and here's why, and yet it falls on people's ears, and I'm like, yeah, that sounds good, and, and it frustrates me. I think there are times, and I'm just being honest with you about where I'm at, at times my healthy eagerness for the return of Jesus has in my heart felt more like impatience. Where in my heart, it's like, Lord, I, I can't put up with this nonsense anymore. The, the, the manipulation, the, the, the perverse and disgusting ideas that are being celebrated as virtuous. I'm tired of dealing with it, Lord. Come back. Come back today. And then I remember 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9. Would you look at that with me? When I have those feelings, when that frustration hits me, I remember 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. A thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not really slow about 
His promise, about keeping His promise, as some people think in terms of slowness. He says, no, He, God, is being patient. He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. James chapter 5 reminds me of what my heart attitude should look like when it comes to the return of Jesus. Yeah, there needs to be a healthy eagerness there. We should desire to see Jesus come back. But look at this, James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Dear brothers and sisters, dear, dear believer, dear follower of Christ, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. God hasn't come back. Jesus hasn't come back because He's being patient. And you and I are being called to be patient and wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmer who patiently waits for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest, harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Jesus is coming back. When the time is right, when God says the time is right, then that day will come. And in the meantime, stay calm, wait with faith, wait with grace, keep living everyday life with love and joy and peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, humility, gentleness, compassion, and yes... Patience. It's not always easy to be patient, but we're not called to what's easy. You and I, as followers of Christ, we're called to do hard things. One of those hard things is unlimited patience. We can do it, not in our own strength, but relying on the Spirit of God. I love Hannah's example. I'm going to give it to you one more, one more time. When she was frustrated and hurt and wanted things to change, the way she dealt with that was through prayer. Through prayer. Asking for God's help. Let's take that example. Let's live it out. In Jesus' name. Lord, thank you so much for...